Thank you guys for tuning in today and welcome to another episode of The Source. I'm your host, Zan Raza, and today I'll be talking to Professor Richard Wolf about the economics of the Ukraine war. Professor Richard Wolf is the founder of Democracy at Work and Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He's the author of many books, the latest being When Capitalism Can Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Professor Richard Wolf, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Sarah Wagenknecht, left-wing politician and member of the German parliament, caused a political and media uproar last year in Germany when she stated that Germany and its allies are waging an economic war against Russia. How would you classify the West's economic policy towards Russia since the war began? Well, I think that the problem of the war, the Ukraine war, uh, can be handled this way. There are two wars. One war is military and involves Russia and Ukraine. Uh, there it is pretty clear that one of the two sides is better equipped, larger, and I mean, there's really not much of a contest on the military scale. Uh, unless you are prepared to confront Russia yourself, you are watching a war that is being won by one side and lost by the other. Uh, and that's true whether or not you fill the Ukrainian uh, weapons uh, gap with uh, external weapons. Uh, that slows the process, but it does not change. And the West understood that, and so the West undertook a second different war. And in that case, we have the same kind of imbalance in the sense that the United States and Western Europe and Japan on the one side waging economic war against Russia. Many people do not understand that that is the same lopsided war uh, in economic terms that the other one is in military. So let me give you a statistic that more people should understand. In economics, we use something called the GDP, the gross domestic product. It gives you a rough idea of the size of an economy. It measures literally the total output of goods and services in one calendar year. The most recent year for Russia, the GDP of Russia is one and a half trillion dollars. On the other side is the United States, whose most recent GDP is 21 trillion dollars. In other words, this is a struggle, economically speaking, an economic war waged by sanctions and counter sanctions that we all know about. Uh, this is a war between David and Goliath and you can all figure out who's on which side uh, in this arrangement. If you then add the countries of Europe, Germany, France, Britain, Italy, to the United States, then it becomes closer to a 30 to one ratio of economic wealth. That is as lopsided an economic war as the military war is only in reverse. The mystery is why it has not succeeded. Why, after nearly a year of war, the promised, and I mean it, promised by the West, by our President Biden, among others, that this would destroy Russia as an economic entity, that they would be prostrate, that the ruble would be worthless in international uh, currency exchange, that the economy would have collapsed. All of that was wrong. None of that has happened. Uh, and the mistake in the West 
was not understanding that the global economy has changed and the dominance of the United States, which was already slipping for some decades, has now been exposed and revealed as far less of an economic power uh, than it was imagining itself to be. Russia turned out to have very important allies, chief of them, the People's Republic of China. Just again, to keep the statistic in everyone's mind, the most recent GDP of China is $17.5 trillion. Therefore, catching up to the United States and many, many, many times larger than Russia. Given China and India and Turkey and Iran and other supports that Russia has been able to get, the predictions were wrong and we now face a kind of stalemate situation because the predicted dominance of the United States, which it had gotten used to for 75 years since the end of World War II, is now over. And it's going to take a lot of time before the different people and, and blocks in the world adjust to this. But I can leave you with an economist's warning. Countries around the world, and this includes every country in Europe, better rethink their strategic decisions because the world has changed and it will not go back. This genie cannot go back in the bottle. This is a new situation and will have enormous ramifications. I want to focus right now uh, exclusively on the impact on Russia. Could you first talk about what measures uh, Western countries, in particular the U.S., took to isolate Russia and then talk about whether uh, how it impacted the economy of Russia? Sure. Um, every kind of sanction imaginable has been tried uh, here against Russia. That is, Russia has been subject to sanctions before. This is not the first time. There is experience with sanctioning Russia going back at least 15, 20 years. Um, I'm talking legal public sanctions. Illegal, under the table, that's an even longer, older story. That goes back to the days of the Soviet Union and so on. Uh, but this has been an attempt to learn from the sanctions applied against Cuba, Iran, China, to do it all, to, to try to come together and do it all. So, for example, about $300 billion worth of currency reserves uh, kept in Western banks and so forth by the, by the Russians to, to support their currency was seized. Uh, the Russians are denied access to what is Russian property. It should be kept in mind what this means, because this is a precedent, whether the people who did it intended it as a precedent or not, the notion that we live in a global economy run by the United States, which observes the rules of private property, that is over. There is no private property rule. It is trumped by the economic nationalism that has replaced neoliberal globalization as the dominant ideology here in the United States. Uh, the Russians were denied use of the international payments system called the SWIFT. Uh, that's just an acronym 
uh, the SWIFT system. That makes it much more difficult uh, to arrange payments. It's a way of interfering and hobbling international trade. Then sanctions were put against individuals, against companies, um, enormous pressure, public and private, was put on American corporations. And by the way, in other countries, this was also done, but I'm talking mostly here about the United States. That's what I know best. Um, and so American companies sold their subordinate companies in Russia to other companies, other international companies, in some cases, other Russian companies in, in, in still others. The United States has threatened other countries and other companies around the world with sanctions if they do trade with Russia. Uh, somebody, nobody knows who, somebody blew up the pipeline in the North Sea. Uh, embargoes against oil and gas, in some cases uh, transported by sea, in some cases transported by land, pipeline, and so on, uh, shutting off the export of energy, which is a major support for the Russian economy. All in all, if Russia had not had major allies in the world, these measures would have reasonably hobbled in a very short time the Russian economy. Uh, it didn't do that, but the major reason is that the Russians had developed far better than most of us who observe these situations understood, and clearly um, better than the West understood, had developed relationships above all with China and India, but other countries as well, that allowed them basically, not to put a long face on this, but to substitute relationships with Asia, Africa, and Latin America that were taken together, able to stifle most of what the West sought. So for example, if you measure over the last 12 months, the amount of damage suffered by an economy in terms of uh, slowing production and so on, there is a shrinkage in Russia, but it is actually not as big as the shrinkage in the United States and Western Europe. So the irony, it's really, it's remarkable. Uh, the irony is that yes, the war has been a, an enormous expenditure here in the United States. If you take all the commitments together, it's over a hundred billion dollars, which is makes it the most expensive war in recent memory. Um, and it's less than a year old, so who, who knows? Um, but the impact of the war has been to do damage globally and to do as much damage to the West as to Russia. Now, Russia is a much smaller economy so that it has less resources to cope. So it is causing trouble inside Russia. That's clear. They are having to divert resources from producing for the civilian sector to producing war materials, but nothing compared to the collapse that was predicted by the West has happened, and unless something changes, there's no prospect of that happening this year either. Meanwhile, the inflation, the rising interest rates in the West are a much more serious threat to the economy of the West 
than this war has proven to be to the economy of Russia. Just to make a counter argument, some would say that it's not about achieving economic objectives. It's about uh, setting a tone. Uh, it's about moral significance. Uh, how would you comment on that, for example, when people would argue that sanctions in this case, even if they didn't work, showed uh, our moral significance in terms of protecting freedom and democracy? I, I must say I find it uh, extraordinary, <laughs> such an argument. Um, even here in the United States, you would have a difficulty with that argument from both the right wing and the left wing, neither of which would accept such an argument. I, remember, I'm talking from the United States. Uh, here's our record as a nation when it comes to a rules-based international order or authoritarian government or large countries invading small countries, all of that kind of talk that what you just said refers to. The United States invaded Korea, it's a small country. The United States invaded Vietnam, it's a small country. The United States invaded Afghanistan, it's one of the poorest countries on the face of the earth and a small country. The United States invaded Iraq, In every, I could go on, in Libya and so forth. We have a history as a nation. If there are rules-based international order, then the rule that we can identify is the United States does what it wants to do in the last 75 years, and either the United Nations goes along or it doesn't, but it doesn't really matter. And, and people like me who are close to the American government in terms of my personal life and my personal friendships, it doesn't enter into their mind. Therefore, suddenly to be outraged when another country, in big country, relatively, invades a small one, relatively, uh, to be all excited about taking moral positions, uh, wow, that requires a level of blindness and gullibility and one-sidedness that's a little embarrassing uh, to witness, let alone to repeat. You mentioned the impact on uh, Europe and the United States. Could you elaborate on that uh, in terms of uh, the economic impact and it's having also on the infrastructure and energy infrastructure, etc.? Yes, well, I mean, the most immediate and obvious has been the uh, impact on energy prices, um, number one. Uh, that impacts Europe, not the United States. So that puts the United States in a bizarre situation, but it's even more bizarre for, for you in Europe, for the Europeans, because the United States takes the lead in applying sanctions whose impact is much more severe on the economy of Europe than on the United States. Uh, one would have thought to the degree that economic considerations are important, and they always are, more or less, that the leadership would have been taken by Europe, since they have to live with the negative consequences. The United States has its own sources of energy, could care less whether Russia does or doesn't export. I mean, it has Im implications on global prices, and that's important, but it's not the kind of impact that you're seeing uh, all across Western Europe, and particularly in the countries that did rely on cheap energy uh, from Russia. But I would stress that the impacts here go far beyond the immediate question of inflation, 
stimulated by rising energy prices. Uh, there were other factors, and they are just as important. They're related to the war in Iraq, so it's not a separate matter, but they are also distinct. And here's, here's the basic one. There is an empire that is declining. If you look at the 19th and 20th century, whatever else you say, you notice, especially as the 19th century moves into the 20th century, that the dominant empire of those two centuries, the British Empire, was declining, especially in the 20th century. It had was being challenged by the United States, a former colony, by Germany trying, as it always did, to match British capitalism, and by Japan emerging later. And you still had the competing colonial systems, the French, the Russian, the Dutch, and so on. But the British Empire was declining. World Wars I and II removed the German and Japanese competitors, leaving the field to the United States. We are now in a post-peak American empire phase. That's what I referred to before. People have, be have begun, but only begun, to understand the macro picture here. This is a declining empire. The Chinese are the obvious rising empire. China, it has to be understood, is the first serious economic competitor to the United States in nearly a century. The American dominance emerges in World War I and the interwar period and becomes clear to everyone with end of World War II. Russia was never an economic competitor. That's why I gave you the statistic, one and a half trillion, 21 trillion. I mean, that's not the same number at all points, but the idea is Russia may have had a nuclear weapon and may have been a serious military problem, but it was never an economic competitor. For that, we have to wait for China. China's GDP, in case anyone wonders, the 17 trillion. That's a competitor for the United States. And everything that is happening now has to be contextualized as part of that struggle. That's why it should have been clear before that Russia would turn to China for all kinds of assistance, probably made the decision, I wouldn't know, but probably made the decision to move into Ukraine, having already worked out with China what they would or wouldn't do uh, as allies. In other words, we have a new situation. For most of the last 75 years, any country, anywhere, where the local political leadership wanted to break out of the U.S. hegemony capitalist world economy, was pretty quickly smashed and crushed because they had nowhere else to go. You have to work with global capitalism. It is highly unequal as a system. The United States sits at the top politically, economically, and militarily. What are you going to do? You have no option. And the United States made it very clear. If you if you don't listen to us politically, we will squeeze you economically. If you do not listen to that, we will attack you. I mean, it's your choice. 
but we will defeat what you are doing, and you can only choose which way you're going to be defeated. Um, if you want an example, look at Cuba. That's how they dealt with Cuba, and they dealt more or less everybody. There is now a change. This change, I cannot exaggerate this. Country after country is now experimenting. The smallest countries of Africa, the smallest countries of Latin America are experimenting in this new world. They are dealing with the People's Republic of China. By the way, they're dealing with Russia too. Russia is able to sell oil and gas in limited quantities to small, poorer countries because everybody has a choice now. The United States and Western Europe are desperately trying to hold on to a dominance that is shrinking with each passing week. They can continue to pretend to themselves and to the world that they are still in charge, but this sanction war and its failure so far uh, is a major blow, and, and they are going to have to adjust to the changing world just like everybody else. I also want to talk about uh, the effect military spending has been having on the United States itself. Uh, billions of billions of dollars are going uh, in military aid to Ukraine. Um, uh, last I heard that uh, the amount of aid that's been sent to Ukraine uh, in 2022 is more than the uh, budget of the State Department. What effects is all of this military aid having on the United States itself? Well, uh, let me quote you back to you. So far, this is all justified in grandiose, uh, patriotic matters of principle. Um, if you know anything about American politics, when a politician in this country talks about principle, my advice is reach into your back pocket, hold on to your wallet, because someone is about to remove the money that was in it. Uh, and Americans make that joke all the time. So most Americans are not much fooled by this business either. Here's the reality that is hidden from the public. If you suddenly have in this country a devastating inflation running eight, nine, 10% per year, which is what we had starting in the latter part of 2021 and basically running across uh, 2022, um, pretty soon you're going to have trouble especially if the rate of uh, the rising wages is much behind the rate of rising prices. And in our country here in the United States, rising wages have rarely been more than half the rate of rising prices, therefore meaning that you're squeezing your working class badly. But on top of that, remember that this is a working class that was already squeezed by the pandemic for two years, and by the economic crash that accompanied the pandemic. So you have a, a working class that has been relatively losing wealth for 25 years, having gone through a terrible pandemic and crash to be followed by an inflation and now to be followed by raising interest rates. This is a country whose level of indebtedness, government debt, corporate debt, and household debt is higher than ever in the history of this country by a lot. So raising interest rates is a very serious economic blow on top of the inflation, on top of the pandemic, on top of the crash, and on top of 25 years of wealth redistribution. No working class 
can exist under such pressure for so long at such a level. And so what you're seeing over the last 12 months in the United States is a rise of the militancy of the labor movement, which is, we've never seen that in 100 years. We are now seeing levels of unionization, of strikes that bring us back to the 1930s with the worst crash of capitalism uh, in its history. That, that has to be understood. That's a consequence of all of this. In the midst of this, to deal with the inflation, our government is raising interest rates. That, of course, hurts poor people and middle-income people, small businesses and medium businesses, because for them, uh, a few rising levels of interest rate cripple their ability to function because they have such debts. We are told falsely that this is the only way to deal with the inflation. I do interviews across the United States where I explain to people that the last time we had an inflation like this in the 1980s, our conservative president, Richard Nixon, imposed a wage price freeze overnight, August 15, 1971, and that solved the inf inflation problem. Today, we don't do that but we don't even allow a conversation. We have a society in which the government tells us this is the only way and this is what we're going to do. Okay, uh, what are the consequences? Here's the irony. Raising interest rates is to slow the inflation. Yeah, but the government's expansion of money spent on the war in Ukraine is the opposite. It makes inflation worse. Everyone who's ever studied economics understands that a sudden increase in a government expenditure is inflationary. So we have the government spending more on Ukraine on the one hand and limiting the spending of small and medium households and businesses by raising interest rates. You know what that is? A, contradictory, B, senseless, and C, a not very subtle way of saying we're rearranging the economy. You small and, and medium-sized businesses, you small and medium-sized households, you're gonna have to cut back your consumption so that we can free resources to throw into military production for Ukraine. Who pays for the war as usual? Yeah, but the problem here is that in the United States, making the working class pay coincides with an, a rising militarization and militancy of our labor movement, that is a very dangerous thing. And you're beginning to see both on the right wing and on the left a coming together of neither of whom is happy with this war in Ukraine and the way it is being funded. And, and the moral argument cannot, never has in this country, and will not now be strong enough to overcome the on-the-ground material problems that I'm talking about. Left-wing economists usually argue that government spending in the social fabric does not lead necessarily to inflation. How come this is the case uh, that military spending uh, would uh, lead to inflation? Well, mostly because uh, it, it, it's an opportunity for what we call here the military-industrial complex. Let me explain. 
many, many years ago, a, a wonderful relationship was developed between the military, the government, and the industries that produce the planes, the bullets, the guns, the tanks, and all the rest of it. Uh, very famous President Eisenhower after World War II, when he leaves office as president, makes a famous speech where he warns the American people uh, about the military-industrial complex, which works like this. Very important for people to understand. Uh, the government gives contracts to military producers. These are called cost-plus contracts. In other words, the military producer says, it'll cost me a million dollars to make that airplane, and therefore I want a contract for $1,100,000 because I need a profit of $100,000, and, and that's how the contract is written. Okay, so now we permit the military defense producer, we permit them to take whatever steps they want politically. What steps do they take? They support the political candidates who write those contracts for them. So we have a wonderful relationship. Who gets into office? People who are believers in military spending. Why? Because the military contracts who get spent on take a portion of the money they get from the government to bribe, or excuse me, to donate to the government. What, I mean, this is childish. We've, we've been dominated by that. Every year, including the one we're just finishing now, every year there is a request from the military for a certain amount for the budget for that year. And they typically get many billions of dollars more than they request. Normally, when requests go in, they are reduced a little by the politicians. But in this case, for example, this year, there were tens of billions of dollars allocated to the military larger than what the Biden administration requested from Congress. And that's usual. That's not unusual. So we have a situation where when the government spends enormously, it is easy for these companies with their longstanding cozy relationships to raise the prices of whatever it is they charge the government for. And since they know they're getting more each year, and since they know they're raising the prices, they can in turn, in turn, pay more for their inputs, whether it is sandwiches brought to their workers for lunch, or it's electricity they buy, or it's inputs of iron and steel. In other words, they can percolate, they can spread the inflation throughout the economy. When you remember that the United States federal government is the largest single consumer in the country, and that one third or more of its budget is military, you are giving an enormous inflationary thrust to the economy when you allow this kind of an expansion with all of its ramifications. And when you have a, a situation of social spending, you have a little of this, but much, much less, because there's no monopoly, there's no uh, social industrial complex that's comparable. The money is spent uh, on working class people, you know, clerks, social workers, 
uh, all that kind of thing. And they're not in a position to demand higher wages and none of that. So basically, you have the same problem. You are increasing spending and liberals should not deny that because it's silly. But it's nothing comparable to the structured situation in defense industries. And of course, I say defense only because that's what we call it. Countries with less problems with honesty call it the War Department. But we, of course, can't because we need to always be uh, pretending, excuse me, advocating that we are in a defense situation. I would like to examine the Ukrainian economy. It shrank by 30% in 2022. Uh, what is not reported with great attention is the role of the IMF in Ukraine. It is estimated somewhere between 40 billion to 57 billion of external financing will be needed by Ukraine this year, including 3 billion that it owes to the IMF itself. This also includes roughly 360 million in surcharges fees alone uh, by 2023. What is the role? What is why is the IMF not uh, when it comes to freedom and democracy um, supporting um, uh, the the Ukrainian um, economy by uh, doing away with these loans and surcharges and just providing free credit? My guess is they are. You're, you're, they're not saying it, but whether they insist on a payment. All right, so then the United States will send another two billion over there so they can pay the charge. These are details. There, for all practical purposes, there's very little economy left in Ukraine. That's the truth. Whatever anybody else tells you, and this is not a critique of, of Ukraine or anything else, you can't be a little country like that fighting a war you couldn't possibly afford uh, against a, a huge enemy better organized, better equipped than you are, uh, and, and being subject to, to missile attacks that destroy your, your infrastructure. I mean, it's, it's over. That is a destroyed economy, whatever the particulars are. You know, uh, they're not that big a country, and they've lost at least five to 10 million people that have left the country. I mean, the jobs those people did aren't being done. Um, and on and on and on and on. So I don't think it's not meaningful at this point to talk about uh, the economy of, of Ukraine, because for all practical purposes, there isn't one. They are getting by. They have to import food. They have to import fuel. They have, you know, every their military runs on what comes from outside, literally down to the bullets that they shoot. Uh, so I think that you're hearing statements and, and the statements if you if you listen carefully the statements can be translated as follows we have committed everything to this war um we were willing to push it to the point where the russians threatened us that they would invade we didn't probably believe they would we were wrong they did um and they are doing what a war involves. We cannot survive that situation. So we become totally dependent. If you listen to Mr. Zelensky, they're totally dependent already on a military basis. If you look at what happened to their labor force, to their transportation system, uh, and I don't even, I'm not even talking about the large parts of the country that are now taken over and run by the Russians. What's left for them is 
chaotic, unable to be repaired, you know, nothing. So they, what you hear from Zelensky are fantastic estimates. It's going to take, the last one I heard, $600 billion to rebuild. They're making statements like the $300 billion taken from Russia that backed its currency, that money, Zelensky says, should be a first down payment on rebuilding uh, Ukraine to punish Russia for the, they're desperate. They, they've committed everything. Mr. Zelensky must know that he will come out of this as a great hero if they can save him. And he, but he will come out as the worst person in the history of Ukraine if this falls apart. He is on the knife edge one way or the other. If, if this isn't fixed, if they don't get vast amounts of money from the West beyond what's already been given to them to repair the damage of the war, uh, the Ukrainians will be the ones that look back on Mr. Zelensky with horror. And he must know that somewhere. Everybody else who pays attention does. It's a very open question. And this is Mr. Zelensky's nightmare. It's a very open question. Whenever this war ends, and all wars do sooner or later, whenever this war ends, will the countries of Europe and North America be prepared to spend at the same rate to reconstruct that they spent to fight the war? I don't think so. But of course, I can't tell the future any better than anyone else can. But Mr. Zelensky, his life depends on that question and how it gets answered. Professor Richard Wolf, founder of Democracy at Work, author and economist, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure, and I hope we can get a chance to talk again soon. And thank you guys for tuning in today. Don't forget to join our alternative channels on Rumble and Telegram. We are switching away from YouTube as YouTube is shadow banning us, so please join. And don't forget to donate so we can continue with our independent and non-profit news and analysis. I'm your host, Zan Raza. See you guys next time.